for September 24th, 2012. It's the Overthinking It Podcast, episode 221. Brought to you by Transformers 6. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. I have locked Matt Rather in my basement, which I probably shouldn't have done, so that I can host this show for everybody. Yay! I'm kidding. Matt's actually perfectly fine no, and safe. No, no, no. You, you did him a favor, let's be honest, because a basement in Cambridge, Massachusetts is better than, a I don't know, whatever he lives in in Los Angeles. Look, blah, 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 blah. Bleeding <laughs> edge of pop culture. I'm so sick and tired of it. It's West Coast elitism. The foliage in New England is just starting to pop, and he's going to love being relatively closer to it, although he can't see it when he's in his basement. You'll let him uh, out to go apple picking, right? Because that's what we do in the, in the Northeast. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. You got, you got yourself a, a nice little date you want to go on. You don't want to have too much fun. Apple picking is the way. <laughs> <laughs> it's apple picking season, folks, and that means it's time for the Overthinking of Podcast. <laughs> All right, so this weekend we're going to talk about uh, the Emmys a little bit, which are going on as we speak, which we are keeping track track, track of on the live blogs and on the uh, on the Twitterverse and whatnot. Uh, by the time you read this, they will have already happened. So this is a message from the past. Uh, and we're also going to talk a little bit about the movie The Master, uh, which I don't know what it is about. I mean, I sort of do, but I've been told that it isn't really about what it's supposed to be about. Uh, and it just seems really esoteric or, or really kind of like difficult to fully grasp. So I have to ask our panel the question of the week, which is, what are you the master of? Now, to start off, I I actually – I think I'm going to have to start dropping one of my favorite tired gags, which is that we have added a new regular uh, member to our team. You've probably heard him podcast before, seen his articles before on the site. Uh, He's awesome, and he also has a very uh, forwardly positioned alphabetical last name. So I'm getting bumped further down the chain, but that's okay if it's for folks of this quality. Uh, Ben Adams, how are you doing, man? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. I'm a little bit. I'm flagging a little bit, but you know what? We're going to push through it. I was really hit really hard by the uh, Giancarlo Esposito loss in the best supporting actor category for uh, for the Emmys. That's uh, taken a lot out of me. So it's pretty pretty grim. So I, clearly, he is not the master of being a best supporting actor as much as we might have thought, even on his own show. I know. Seriously, yeah, exactly. You got beat by Aaron Paul, who's you know right there, like in front of him. Jeez, this just goes to show that if, well, you know what, I was going to do a Breaking Bad spoiler in that joke, and I'm not going to do it. So I'm going to check swing and go back to the question. Ben, what are you the master of? I am the master of the Overthinking It podcast question of the week. Adams (laughs) is right at the front of the alphabet, unless there's any Abernathy's or Ackerman's out there. (laughs) You are the master. I'm up front. Fact, yes, on the far on the near side of the world, it looks like, um, yeah, it is a powerful position of power and authority, and I hope that you uh, you take it seriously and you wear it well uh, and whatnot. Cool. <laughs> any any thoughts as this mantle uh, falls upon your shoulders from previous first in the alphabetical order overthinking it podcasters? I, I figure it's it's good it's good because uh, it means that I, nobody can steal my idea, but it's bad because I have the least amount of time to think about what I'm actually going to say. So, you know. We'll see how that goes. Oh, let me tell you. There have been many times where uh, – because, you know, the, the big secret – and here I'll tell you the secret to – and this is to a lot of different kinds of podcasting and such – is uh, when you're going first, you can't pick the easy thing because then you screw up all the 
people behind you who are going to say it. So you got to pick something deliberately obscure or somehow ironic or put a twist on it. And that gives that means that when uh, McNeil's on the podcast, he can answer Abraham Lincoln and everything's good, right? And it gets the laugh that it, it deserves. Hmm. Uh, I guess. I don't know. You'll see. Maybe you could try a different strategy and see if it works. So you're saying with great power comes something. I forget the end of the line. Uh, I think it goes, uh, have you ever danced with the devil in the pale moonlight? I think it's the... Uh, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> It's a shame that line didn't come back for the Christian Bale Batman movies. I really like that line. I think that's my favorite line in any Batman movie, other than sometimes you just can't get rid of a bomb. Um, and speaking of old chums, uh, it's Mark Lee. How are you doing, Mark? Uh, better than I was before this podcast started. Let's put it that way. Uh, what Your life was lacking all meaning and you needed some sort of authority figure to show you how to get purpose? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's go with that. Okay. What am I the master of? Yes. Um, let's see here. Uh, I don't have any master's degrees, so I can't say I'm like I'm a master of business administration or uh, master of fine arts or anything else like that. Um, so I'll go with this. I say I'm the master of scanning uh, items in my Google Reader, like reading news headlines and a short paragraph of them, like reading enough of those so that I can go through conversations, pretend like I actually read a bunch of news articles, but I actually haven't. So just oh. some statistics here. Uh, I think I go through about four thousand. Google Reader items, so articles or whatever else comes in my RSS reader per month. So that works out to about, what, 133 um, uh, air quotes articles that I've read uh, every day. Wow. So that that basically makes me the master of uh, superficially processing a lot of information and being able to to BS my way through it. Is that what, like about five articles an hour all day without sleep? Is that yeah. <laughs> that's how how much you go through? Um, if it's only oh, it's way more than five per hour. Oh, okay, I must be. I'm, yeah. I'm not the say, that is say in the waking hours, like or let's put it this way, in like the uh, uh, the the time that I spend, like you know, it, it breaks from work. Um, you know, it's like you know, scan through dozens of them in, in a matter of uh, seconds or minutes. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's a suitable skill as our pop culture continues to go into that sort of vein, right? As we get these, you know, shorter and shorter packets of cultural information, you can just click on those Imgur links and just pop up those memes and just like roll through them, just like uh, hundreds at a time, right? Yeah, it's like fulfilling cultural existence. Mm-hmm. Um, no comment. But yeah. <laughs> All right. Now uh, I have to answer my question, I guess, which is that I will say that I am the master of uh, the medical treatment of nausea with stoned wheat thins which is something that I feel like not enough people should understand and appreciate. Uh, have any of you guys ever treated nausea with stone wheat thins? Stone wheat thins? As in like the stone brand thins. of snack cracker? Or is this something else entirely different? I, I, I see them less as a snack cracker and more of an over-the-salt pharmaceutical aid. Uh, <laughs> I've used saltines. Pretty yeah, much yeah, the same, yeah, yeah. same idea, yeah. Exactly. I oh, mean, okay, it's okay, okay. the same thing. And I, I just – I picked the subset. I would say that stone wheat thins are us. Are they – you think they're a subset of saltines? Or they're just like a sort of slight off-brand of saltines? I'm not at the master of cousin, classic. Cousin, maybe. A cousin. Only of using them to treat nausea. What? They're a cousin, I think. Oh, okay, okay. We, we need a master of cracker taxonomy to be on this podcast, clearly. Look, don't get racial with me, Mark. That's inappropriate. Uh, <laughs> what, what, you, you, went, you went there, Pete. I didn't I, go there. You went there. It's silly anyway because nobody <laughs> uses that word for any purpose other than referring to – Yeah, the correct the term, treatment. Pete, is honky, okay? So now that oh. we've established that, let's, let's move on from this divisive topic. <laughs> clearly, 
clearly all of us are unruly and are in need of this authority figure that we've spoken about, perhaps one who can inform us of the aliens that live within our souls and inform our actions. Uh, yes, I'm talking about the master, which I mean, I, I, Ben, you saw the master and, and you, I know you want to talk about it at least a little bit uh, in terms of how you reacted to it and, and kind of what place it has in the, among the movies you've seen. Uh, I mean, what's, what's the basic impression? I, I, what I'm talking about, for those of you who don't follow, is that it's sort of, from what I gather, and you can tell me true or false on this, it's sort of supposed to be about Scientology, but isn't really supposed to be about Scientology? Is that kind of the way that it works, or...? That's that's pretty accurate. I mean, it's first of all, it's not it's a fictional science. The the cause is the stand-in for Scientology, but it's pretty much a change in name only. And uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman plays I can't even remember the character's name to be honest because mm-hmm. um, it's not important. But he plays the uh, L. Ron Hubbard equivalent who started this quasi-religious, quasi-scientific cult movement, um, and then he pays. Just kind of Joaquin Phoenix is this drunk, vaguely crazy uh, World War II Navy vet who kind of stumbles across Philip Seymour Hoffman. And they strike up sort of a mentor-mentee relationship, but that's not really doing it justice. And the movie's really about just their relationship and also about a little bit about L. Ron Hubbard and, or Philip Seymour Hoffman and how he builds this cult and kind of how it how it works but it's not it's not an expose it's not a criticism of scientology if you didn't already know bad things about scientology you wouldn't like see this movie and think that it's terrible um so that's not really what it's going for um it's certainly not complimentary of scientology but it's not really trying to be a uh a critical piece on Scientology. At least I don't think that that's its primary goal. So it's sort of like, I mean, I, I sometimes I think of uh, like history plays where you'll watch like a Shakespearean history play and one of the characters is this king and one of the characters is this duke. And it's like, well, yeah, you sort of are supposed to be learning about the history, but the main reason why this is being written is because the relationship between this king and this duke is an interesting relationship. And it's sort of being used to play out a kind of narrative or story or or what have you that you might not otherwise come across if you didn't have this kind of rubric to go from. Like that rubric, more of a scaffold. I don't know. Um, So yeah, so, but I mean... Yeah, um, I, th- I think that I think that's pretty accurate. It it tells you a lot more about cults in general than it does Scientology specifically, and it tells you about this these guys' relationship. But there's not like a real life analog of the Joaquin Phoenix character. So, I mean, when in our pre-show, you seem pretty stymied by the movie in, it's, in certain ways. It's definitely stymied. It's one of those movies where you get to the end and you're just kind of staring at the screen, wondering what you just saw. Um, oh, and wow. I don't I don't mean that in a bad way i also don't necessarily mean it in a good way it just means it's uh, you have to chew on it a little bit and i don't know that i've fully fully processed it yet mm-hmm. interesting and mark you haven't seen it right i, I have not seen it um but the, the question that comes to mind um, I, I also don't know a whole lot about it other than just basically what we've just described here um but the question that comes to mind when considering you know how much is this an allegory for scientology or not is who are the adherents of this cult um i mean when, when you, when you, let's let's zoom out. Here oh, for like a who are the the other people that are mm-hmm. kind of in the little group? Yeah. So before you answer that, just to zoom out here, when we talk about cults, you know, in in the context of American culture, you know, it runs the the gamut from what like the Charles Manson cult to the Branch Davidians, right, and the sort of like fringe groups, uh, you know, the the typically what poor and and and, and downtrodden in a rural area, and then um, if we're talking about if we're 
putting Scientology in this category of cult, um, then the adherents of it are typically urban. Uh, we associate the, the rich celebrities with it. I don't know if that's representative of the makeup of Scientology, but the most prominent members of Scientology are like that. Um, so what about the cult in The Master? Where does it fall on that spectrum? It's a lot closer to the latter. Most of the adherents are kind of know, rich dilettantes. They're you know, lost and looking for something new and different to explain the world, and this guy seems to have the answers. So when you have that in a movie and you think about you know, other cults in, in, that are prevalent in the, Amer- in the American pop culture conscience, like what else is there besides Scientology? I mean, like, is, it, is that just the default? Like, of course, that's what it is about. Or, you know, because you say, like, it's about cults in general, but uh, I think there's a different um, feeling to it when, when, when the adherents to it are this richer subset. Right. I think the, the closest analog for me, and I want to avoid getting too political, but people that are like over the top into alternative medicine, like homeopathy and things like that. And that, that's kind of my, the, the closest analog I can think of, of people that are really into that and think that the mainstream medicine is just poisoning us and everybody else is lying and they're willing to pour a lot of money and time into something that doesn't have a whole lot of support. Do they have right. a master? I guess there are. That, all I, sort of like that I don't know. I'm, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure I, there are. Yeah, I mean, I, I think cult is a tricky word. If I could just jump in for a second with kind of a, a pet peeve, if, if that's all right. I don't want to make this a peeve cast. This is a podcast for discerning pop culture aficionados. But I, people have. I think people have issues talking about the world word cult, and I come across it a lot online. Which is like people sort of ask, okay, well, what is a cult, right? And you define a cult by sort of externally observable characteristics, right? Like, okay, it has a leader. It believes in something very strongly. It has a tightly knit social organization, um, and then they sort of then they sort of deliberately misapply the word to things for which they it is generally not applied, right? Like they sort of to in order to show to in order to sort of indict these other things, right? So the most, the most classic example of this is like you know you 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 compare like a cult. Uh, you co- you compare different religions against each other. Like this one is a cult, and this one isn't a cult. And like, uh, but aren't they all cults? And and because they all have these same characteristics. And the thing that always gets my goat about it is that it's important to realize, at least for me, and maybe you guys have a different take on this, that like cult is a word that makes something bad by calling something it. Right. Right. Like like it's like there are a lot of words like this that are just you know pejorated by their nature. That like when you name something like this, you are you are taking responsibility for insulting it. You are not necessarily, uh, or you should take responsibility for insulting it because that's what you're doing by choosing that word. Uh, it's not like, well, because of the dictionary definition of this word, like another one is, you know, the classic one is fascist, right? You call someone a fascist or something a fascist, and you're like, well, it's not my fault that they don't believe in freedom or whatever, you know? Like, I don't want to go down that road too far, but it's like, well, no, the ele- there's an element of that word that is, you know, uh, insulting, and I mean, and I don't want to say insulting like it's always, you know, like it's a personal affront or it's discourteous, but I mean, there's part of it that is, is bad. Like this thing is bad, in, and it is bad in this way. Um, and uh, and I think that, uh, I mean, to, it's, yeah, when you call something a cult, you're saying it's bad, it's bad in a way that is similar to these sort of spiritual, religious, uh, you know, tightly knit social organizations. Um, I mean, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? Like other words, sort of of this nature, where people kind of use 
people ignore the fact that words have positive or negative connotations kind of independently of what they correspond to um, as objects. Yeah, I, I know which, the, the the phrase I've always heard for cults is you know a cult is what a little what a big what a big church calls a little church is a cult. Yeah, it's an insult. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and it's, its main force is an, is an insulting one, and also an otherizing one. It's like, oh, it's like a little group of people that are kind of outside the mainstream, um, and and they're bad and they're dangerous, right? And uh, we don't like them. Uh, I mean, does this does the master does the master use the word cult? And no. and does no, it doesn't. So it never it never uses never uses the word cult. And do you get the sense that it's? I mean, from what you said, it seems like it isn't leveling the charge of cultishness at the organization that it's talking about. Yeah, it's it's it. I mean, I'd have to check the transcript. It might use it in there once. Right. In particular, there's one scene where it's possible. There's one very interesting scene that kind of tells what we're talking about, where Philip Seymour Hoffman is opining to this rich group of New York socialites about time traveling and how we have past lives and all this stuff. And there's this guy in the corner who keeps being like, "Excuse me, excuse me," and he's getting louder and louder and louder. And eventually, Philip Seymour Hoffman just kind of flips out on him. And they get into this argument where the guy in the corner is is the skeptic in the room is basically being like, what you're saying is, you know, there's no proof for, there's no science for. Um, and Philip Seymour Hoffman just kind of destroys this guy. Not fair. He doesn't use fair debating tactics. He just kind of levels him with rhetoric. Right, right, right. Um, and, and so like that's force about the personality and charisma, no doubt. Right. And so yeah. it doesn't specifically level a charge of cult and it definitely doesn't show the aspects of like oh you're not allowed to leave the cult or we're going to break you down mentally before you join so you can join the cult it doesn't doesn't show that kind of thing but it's not very complimentary of this group because it's very clear kind of in the subtext that philip seymour often is just kind of making this stuff up as he goes along right 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 and people are following him yeah yeah right. because they they need something to follow because of something yeah. that's going on in their life yeah, yeah, which is interesting. I mean, it's interesting that it's called the master, right? Because that would seem, you know, that in much the same way that kind of cult communicates, you know, a badness and an otherness and, and a sort of that is kind of independent of the things that it corresponds to. Like master is also a word that is kind of very isolated. You know, well, what are you a master of? There isn't a, there isn't as much specifics in the word master as we might come to think that there is. Right, like um, it can apply very broadly to a wide variety of relationships, and of course, it can also resonate in a lot of pleasant ways, and, and um, it can be kind of a threatening word in and of itself, also. Um, but yeah, I mean, like I know another thing you were talking about a little bit pre-show, and I don't want to, you know, I'll pull back the curtain, you know, oh no, there's the wires are showing. Um, it was was that this movie for you? You didn't know what was going to happen in this movie when you saw it, pretty much at all. And you said this was uh, well. Describe what you were telling us about how you felt about that sensation and that perspective. Right. I mean, most movies I've seen the trailer, and I, I'd seen the trailer for this one, but the trailer doesn't reveal anything. Most movies, you've got a good idea of based on the genre and other things. You've got a pretty good idea of where the movie's going. We talked a little bit about seeing Judge the new Dread movie. I haven't seen that movie. Mm-hmm. But I know roughly that it's going to involve him going to a tower, him fighting his way through a bunch of bad guys, presumably to get a series of small goals accomplished so that he can accomplish the large goal of killing the big bad. Like, right, presumably right, right. that's the rough outline of the movie. Romantic comedy, same deal. You know, it's going to be boy meets girl, meet cute, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They fight, they get back together, the end. Mm-hmm. This movie, I didn't really have an expectation of where it was going in terms of plot. I knew that 
Joaquin Phoenix was going to fall into this group run by Philip Seymour Hoffman. And that was about it. So it was very interesting to have that experience of walking into a movie pretty much without knowing what was going to happen. Yeah. I think it made the movie more interesting, I think, because I was very engaged. You you can't just kind of fill in the blanks. I was very engaged in what was going on because I didn't know what to expect what was going to happen next. Yeah. How much of that do you think is attributable to the title of the movie? Like, do you think they could have given the movie another title and it would have given away a lot more about what happens in the movie? I don't think so. And part of that's just because what happens in the movie, it's definitely much more of a mood movie than it is a plot movie. Like, I could tell you what happens in the movie and it wouldn't really spoil the movie for you because it's more really just about the relationship between the two main characters than it is what happens to them. Yeah, yeah. Because it's interesting because there's kind of two forms of, I think, what you're talking about, at least the way I see it, which is there are movies where you have have no information about what's going to happen in the movie, yet you somehow manage to have some sort of coherent approach to seeing it, Uh, usually because there's some sort of other compelling reason, like someone's bringing you to it or it's gotten a lot of critical acclaim. Um, But generally speaking, if you really have no clue what's going on in the movie, it's kind of going to be pretty rare that you're going to go watch it you're going to choose to spend your money on something you don't know anything about but the rare occasion where some sort of other factor brings you to the table and then the other one is that you're wrong right like or like you are told you are you're sort of hinted uh at what the movie is about and it turns out to be about something else right like uh i mean this is sort of a, a rather cheaper trick um some i mean it's sort of like when we talk about the twist what's the twist to this movie right because like you get you were led to think that it's going to be one kind of movie and then all of a sudden it turns around on you and it's about you know, the kid can see that the chick is a dude the whole time, even though they're dead or something like that. Um, <laughs> what have you, Kobayashi and whatnot. Um, but yeah, but it seems like the former of those experiences, because it seems difficult to escape any sort of formation of your opinions about a movie, because there's going to be somebody talking about it somewhere. Um, even if you're not, I mean, I'm not on the Facebooks and I still hear about this stuff all the time. Um, from all sorts of people, so that can't be the only way that it's happening. You know what it reminds me of, actually? Uh, maybe you guys have a take on this. Um, I, I don't know about this, about this about you, Ben, in particular, but do you guys play video games a lot in like the pre-internet era, in like, the mm-hmm. NES era, and like, the early Super, Nint- early Super Nintendo era? Well, on computer games, yes. But- computer games. Um, and do you remember, did you play games where you would find out from friends things that were kind of secret about the games, or ways to beat things, or things like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Like, like, you know, I think back to, you know, The Legend of Zelda, right? Good example. And you need to get the meat to give it to the pig to get past the pig in the dungeon, right? It's one of the grumble, grumble pig that everybody confronts at some point when they play that game, if they play it for long enough. Uh, And thinking back in retrospect, it's amazing how that information was able to spread from person to person. Um, You know, because we consider things being social now as being so dependent upon technological infrastructure to get the word out about things. But it seemed like everybody knew about like minus world in, you know, super Mario brothers and stuff like that. Um, so it seems weird to be able to go into a movie with no pre preconceived notions, not only just because of social media or regular media, you know, or like, you know, fully caffeinated, you know, unleaded media or whatever. Um, you know, like it, it just seems difficult. Anyway, I don't know if there's any insight in, in, in that comment, but uh, it's something that comes to mind. Um, yeah, but you went with a clear mind. It's like somebody like wiped your mind clear and uh, let you access the secret of an authentic experience, which is another Scientology thing, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh man! So it, it, it sounds like we're—I don't know—we're we running out of things to talk about with this movie uh, proper, but um, it, it might be worth considering uh, for a moment the film career of its star, Philip Seymour Hoffman, and mm-hmm. where this fits in his uh, in his filmography. Um, if you if you skim through um, the works of Philip Seymour Hoffman, um, you—the you, first thing that strikes out immediately is that. Um, the the range that that he does um if you consider like um if you think of an actor like completely slumming it like the chris oh, not not chris rock the rock in the the tooth fairy like immediately comes to mind is like how low can an actor go sort of like you know while remaining in sort of the a-list territory and then you know escalating all the way up to uh you know the master and the sort of like prestige picture uh work all the way on the other end of the spectrum i'm, I'm all about spectrums tonight by the mm-hmm. way um, Philip Seymour Hoffman is decidedly weighted in the latter side of the spectrum here, and um, I, I'm wondering what to make of this. Like, you know, how you know how is it that that he has been able to be choosy, or if that's what is going on, or is that sort of like just the roles find him in some in some particular way? Well, I mean, we have to speculate, I think, but uh, I mean, yes. if we're going to speculate, <laughs> yeah, let's, let's I mean. That. Well, uh, I mean, let's consider the counter proposition, right? So, who, what's an example of an actor who's like won an Academy Award, is a very talented and skilled individual who clearly has mastery over his craft, but just does buckets and buckets of poop? Uh, and that would be like Nicolas Cage, yep, for that's, example. That's exactly where I was going to go. <laughs> and from what I hear as the counter example, there's a couple reasons why Nicolas Cage does the movies that he does. The first one being financial. Right, that he has like a either an alimony arrangement or some sort of like divorce settlement, or he has some sort of thing that happened in his past that caused him to incur a large financial liability, and he has to keep making movies uh, in order to uh, pay off this this financial liability, um, and uh, and that's something that he just has to do. I mean, I think you could also look at Liam Neeson, and you could say, well, he started pumping out the movies after his wife died. You know, which is very sad. Uh, but you know, maybe it seems easy to sort of narrativize that he threw himself into his work huh. at that point in his life. Yeah, I guess and, that makes uh, making fun of uh, the, the existence of Taken Two a little bit less uh, enjoyable, huh? Taken Two, Electric Boogaloo. Yeah. Like uh, I, I will fun. No, we can still make fun of it. It's there. Like the reason they made Taken Two is because people liked. They can one. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I sincerely doubt that Liam Neeson would be mad at you for thinking that taking two, taken two is funny. That's good because <laughs> the thought of Liam Neeson being mad at me is is, uh, is pretty frightening. I'd rather <laughs> not consider that possibility. I may not be making prestige pictures, but I'm a man with certain skills. And if you mock Taken 2, I will find you, and I will make you watch Taken 1 oh. and Taken 2 in consecutive order. I'm no, sorry, I'm sorry, Liam Neeson. No, no, we love Liam Neeson. I don't want to apologize for him. I mean, he has a totally legitimate reason to want to be doing these movies, and maybe he has other reasons too. But um, I mean, I guess so. What this, what I'm saying is, there are two reasons why Philip Seymour Hoffman uh, might be not be doing those other movies. A, he might not want to, right? And he, and B, like he may not need to, like he may not need the money. Um, I don't know what and his situation is financially. He does do some of the. The big budget. I'm just looking. He's looks like he's scheduled for the new Hunger Games movie, and you know that's his big budget that gets and a couple other ones in here. So I mean, maybe you just. I always hear actors say, you know, I'm going to do one for me and one for the studio. Maybe his ratio is just a little higher, like four for him and one for the studio. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, and I think another thing to add is that um, to compare contrast him with the aforementioned Nicolas Cage and Liam Neeson. Although it's getting a little bit silly to say this about Nicolas Cage now in his career, like 
it's hard to imagine the kind of crappy movie that would really want Philip Seymour Hoffman. Right, because it's like because because Philip Seymour Hoffman is offering. He's very versatile as an actor, and everybody loves to talk about his range and versatility. But he does have a look, and movies are visual. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he's you know he's a big teddy bear kind of guy, and like he can play that in a whole bunch of different ways. I mean, he's in Mission Impossible Three. Like he's not incapable of doing this sort of thing. But like, I mean, he, he, I wouldn't. I don't. Is he really going to play like a wizard fighting alongside Jason Statham? Like really? Like are you really going to hire Philip Seymour Hoffman? I guess you could, but um, it, it just seems. Seems like for the kind of roles, like when you're talking about really crappy disposable genre film, um, which I love, you know, I love Ghost Rider: Spirit of Vengeance more than pretty much anybody else, except for the person I saw it with, because uh, it was a wonderful, blessed experience. Um, but when you consider the kinds of roles that are really prevalent in crappy movies, I don't think they tend to be roles for like you know pensive, doughy guys. You know, they tend to be adrenaline roles, and and I don't think that's something that he necessarily does, right? Like. Um, I mean, can you think of other crappy movies? Like, well, like let, let's look at let's look at somebody who is in Tumor Hoffman's wheelhouse. Let's look at like Paul Giamatti, for example, who has a similar kind of look and kind of markets similar to Philip Seymour Hoffman. He does lots of prestige pictures. He has a lot of cred. He's a lot of nominations. Um, so, what has he done that's trashy? Rock so, of Ages. <laughs> <laughs> well, have no, you folks, forgotten, Pete? <laughs> Rock of Ages, never forget. Philip Seymour Hoffman could have been in Rock of Ages, except I think it was called uh, uh, Almost Famous, right? Was he in that? No, what was he in? Hmm. Um, yeah, he was in Almost Famous. He was yeah. in Rock of Ages yeah, yeah. when it was Almost Famous. It was a good movie. and wasn't a musical. Um, but yeah, but he could totally play that part. In fact, I would even say that Giamatti's per, uh, performance is probably somehow indirectly influenced by Philip Seymour Hoffman's performance in that other movie. But yeah, like I guess I guess put Giamatti's in Hangover 2. You know, he's in... Uh, they were both in Ides of March, but that was a kind of a prestige pick. It wasn't very what good. Is, but oh, is that that's the one where uh, Ryan Gosling's face has been chopped off and replaced by the other half of George Clooney's face? Yes, yes. in a horrible uh, medical procedure. That's exactly what happened. It somehow managed to wind up on the cover of Time Magazine. Horrifying. Even even Robert De Niro had to applaud them for that one. That was like the most drastic piece of method acting I've ever seen in my Although life. Although if they'd taken those two guys and made Face Off two. Now we're talking a movie. <laughs> that would be awesome. <laughs> I mean, what would you what would you call that? I mean, I, you can't just call it handsome off. You have to do something better than that. <laughs> I'm going to take your handsome off, <laughs> and, uh, and they're going to have a speedboat chase uh, where they're like mixing martinis and looking suave while they're driving the speedboats, um, or something like that. I guess they're not really martini kind of guys. Um, but whatever. But yeah, I mean, like Lady in the Water was a stinker, right? Um, and he did. Uh, and then talking about Giamatti again. Um, it was a stinker, but it, it was the sort of movie that took itself very seriously. You know, true. It's not true. like the, my aforementioned uh, the Tooth Fairy. Right, right, right. He was in the haunted world of El Superbisto as Doctor Satan, um, which is a Rob Zombie movie. <laughs> wow. He does he animated in- stuff. That's one thing that Philip Seymour Hoffman could do to slum. He could do more animated movies um, if he wanted to do it. This is our this is our mission now. Is like let's we need to help Philip Seymour Hoffman start slumming more. He needs to do it. He needs to get into the groove. He needs to realize that it's fun. I mean that's the other explanation. And I know I'm doing a lot of talking, and I'll, I'll defer to you guys uh, more. But uh, but the other thing is that maybe making these cruddy movies is fun. And I remember Jason Statham in an interview saying, like, you never know when you're making this movie that it's going to be so bad. Right? <laughs> <laughs> that Jason Statham actually thinks that, you know, 
uh, in the name of the King of Dungeon Quest tale, like, has a good solid chance of being a good movie. And he, he doesn't think it's going to be bad when he makes it, which lines up with what we heard from Michael C. Gross, right, where, uh, when we interviewed him a couple weeks ago, and one of his wonderful stories, when he's like, you know, the, the, the Ghostbusters logo becoming a huge icon was a total accident. Mm-hmm. And anybody who tells you any different is, is, is lying to you, right? Like, you I mean, that's not... Yeah, you can't plan that, to do that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the Transporters are pretty cruddy movie along certain metrics but along others it's beloved so what are you going to do right um but i don't know i mean do you see any other opportunities for philip seymour hoffman to slum other than playing wizards or doing animated like animals he could make a pretty over-the-top villain like he could he could pull that off yeah he he could be a villain in just about anything i mean his villain in mission impossible 3 was actually pretty awesome like he kind of made that movie so i think Um, he i mean he might he might stand out a bit if he were the villain, he, it'd be kind of like Patrick Stewart in uh, Star Trek, where he's kind of standing out for his acting ability as opposed to everybody else. But uh, no, I don't think so bad that he'd bring the movie, that it'd ruin the movie. Okay, here's, here's a long bet for you guys. And we've got to figure out the stakes of this long bet. I want to put down a long bet. I want to see if you guys want to take it. That at some point before the end of his career, Philip Seymour Hoffman will play a Bond villain. That then some Bond movie he will be a villain, and it might not be a Daniel Craig Bond movie. It may be a Bond movie with a different guy, but uh, you know he's still a young man. You know he's uh, he's he's only what um, math. He's only math old. So <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't I wouldn't bet against it if that's what you're asking. I would you're not, not getting my it. long bet. I don't know. I haven't offered any odds or anything like that. No. I guess we can't gamble. Okay. So, it's all so we're, we're in the wrong genre here. We're, we're talking about action sorts of things, and um, yeah. and Phil Seymour Hoffman can pull that off. Um, what we're really uh, missing here is that sort of uh, the Adam Sandler, Kevin James uh, oeuvre of comedies that aren't really striving to do a whole lot, right? Beverly Hills Chihuahua sort of t- territory. Wow. Right? So you're like, saying he, pl- he plays like Jonah Hill's dad in a movie. <laughs> <laughs> like it's in 21 Jump Street. No, no, no. no. <laughs> at this point, jo- Jonah Hill is like put himself at like a, a you know, a tier above like, uh, you know, what and, and that what's, what was Adam Sandler's latest movie? Like the Nicky Nicky movie or something like that? Well, Nicky, uh, what are you talking about? No, 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 no not Little Nicky. You know what I mean. Um, Jonah people- Hill is is at this as at this point like above making the sort of like the, the Adam Sandler schlock. Um, um, I feel like there's an, a contradiction in what you're talking about because certainly Adam Sandler is has been above anywhere that Jonah Hill has been except for nominated for a some sort of paradoxical Oscar. Like you know, Adam Sandler, I feel like as a movie star is like an order higher than Jonah Hill has ever been. Right? Like, am I just totally off base with that or? Uh, when we're talking about orders here, like what, like in terms of uh, just the track record of success, or uh, I'm, I'm, I'm I think they like, oh, go ahead, Ben. I think Adam Sandler at his height, maybe, but it's been a few years since he's made a movie that really, I mean, uh, you know, Jonah Hill's kind of on the ascendant, whereas Adam Sandler is maybe not descending, but has probably hit the high point. I'm just saying that it's like if you're skeptical that Jonah Hill will ever do movies like this ever again because he's on top now, um, all you have to look no farther than Adam Sandler or further than Adam Sandler who can show you that you can go you can go home again. <laughs> you know, like, yes, you can. Um, uh, Jack and Jill, by the way. Oh, Jack where, where and Jill. Where he plays himself and his, tw- and his twin sister. <laughs> to be fair, Little Nicky is widely derided even though I enjoyed it <laughs> uh, with Harvey Keitel as the devil. Um, I mean we're doing a lot of sh- – should we, should we touch on the, on the Emmys a little bit since we're praising people and we're bashing people and it's <laughs> happening right now and everybody seems to care about it and that's important? 
I know that Giancarlo broke my heart. Um, uh, is anything jumping out at you guys as stuff that you're excited about from the results of the Emmys? I mean, maybe you guys, any Louis C.K. Louis C.K. fans? Because he's making out like a bandit. Uh, he's doing really well in these Emmys. Uh, I'm only recently getting hip to Louis C.K., his work, and sort of what he stands for. That's sort of like, you know, independent auteur sort of mm-hmm. thing. So uh, the better he does, sure, more power to him and the more power to, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the independent auteur thing that he's going after. Um, I, I, th- I don't know if we talked about this on on the show before, but like my TV bandwidth is extremely narrow. Um, I, I like I have it in me to follow three thirty minute sitcoms at a time. <laughs> right, <laughs> they are Thirty Rock, uh, uh, Parks and Rec, and Community. Um, right, and I haven't even checked this list here to see if any of them have been nominated for Emmys. I'm sure Thirty Rock, you know, is sort of a perennial nominee for these sorts of things um which sort of takes the fun out of it as well too right you know when mm-hmm. uh, when it, it, a show because they keep pumping it out season after season um and and you know like presume a lot of these well, most of the time you know uh, retains a certain level of quality it's not a big deal it's not a surprise to see someone get that nomination i'm sure it's nice to, to see someone get the win um, yeah. but it takes a little bit of the fun out of it for me right 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 Hmm. I mean, yeah, I, think, I, mean, I think Modern Family kind of plays that role. Like they've been, they've traditionally steamrolled the Emmys, and all signs right now are pointing that they're going to continue to steamroll the Emmys. Yeah, like as of right now, as we're recording, they've got uh, outstanding supporting act. What they've got, uh, they didn't get actor in a comedy series. John Cryer won that one, right? Um, right, but they've yeah. got both the supporting actor and actress. Yeah, it's, since it's an ensemble show, they I think they had like half of those nominations total or something like that yeah geez you know, you know what one thing really jumps out at me and this connects with what we're talking about because if you go all the way down to best supporting actor, and i want you to do this if you've got the emmys in front of you right now because this is kind of amazing if you go down to outstanding supporting actor in a mini series uh who do we find why don't you, you tell me who is the outstanding supporting actor in a mini series or movie and you tell me if you can figure out what he has to do with what we've been talking about. Put you on the spot here. I'm furiously scrolling through this list here. And I'm like, <laughs> All right, just- I'll tell you, fine. His name is Tom <laughs> Berenger, and he has slummed, been slumming harder since before you were born than any of the people we've talked about have ever slummed. He is, uh, I mean, he's a, he's, a, he's a very storied actor from such wonderful films as Platoon and Major League, you know, and he's been in such wonderful movies as... Uh, uh, what an occasional hell where he played Dr. Ernest DeWalt, Major League Two, uh, let's see what the Halloween sign, I see you, Sniper Two, Sniper Three. Uh, he's the original substitute, uh, the substitute teacher who uh, uh, takes over a class of drug dealers because he's a secret covert ops agent who's going to street fight them. And he's in Training Day and Inception and The Big Chill. I mean, this is a guy who has been just pumping out. The movies he's been in 87 different movies and TV shows in his career, which is like you know not quite Gene Hackman quality numbers, but like definitely up there. Um, and it's just been on both sides of the good stuff and the bad stuff. And he was in this remarkable piece of television history that I'm surprised hasn't gotten more play, which is the Hatfields and the McCoys. Um, are you guys are you guys familiar with this thing, this miniseries? Um, I, I saw ads. I didn't see see the show. 
Uh, well, I mean, I didn't see it, but I've been reading the sort of business side of it a little bit, and um, this show did. I, I just really learned that well. Bill back Bill Paxton is in it, which had I known that before, I would have been far more interested in seeing it. Yeah, well, I think this this I think this miniseries just killed it, and I, I mean that in terms of getting like monster cable ratings, right, and just like being tremendously tuned into. Let me see if I can find some ratings information on it, and it was on the History Channel too. Um, it broke ratings records. Uh, let me see exactly. And, it, and it's like, I mean, not even the History Channel. It's on History, right? Um, it's got Kevin Cosner stars in it. Um, let's see. It's the second most watched program in the history of cable. Wow. Yeah. I'm, I'm not kidding. Like, you think I'm being hyperbolic, and I am most of the time. But this time I'm being only parabolic. Um, but, uh, but no, the second mo- – so, like, the second most watched cable program in history is out there, and it, it's got this Emmy for Best Supporting Actor from the guy from Sniper 3. And it's not really taking a lot of press in terms of the, uh, the general wait, appreciation wait, of – What's the highest uh, rated show in the history of cable? Oh, jeez. Um, second most watched. Uh, it's the 2007 TV. Oh, this is this is. What do you think it is? I'll tell you. I'll give you one guess because it's so obvious. It's so obvious. Uh, is, was it an MTV mus- video video music award one year? Oh. Uh, was it was a sport. I got four words for you. Uh, the first three are High School Musical, and the fourth one is two. Ah. <laughs> 2007 TV movie High School Musical 2 is the most watched cable television event ever. Um, believe it or not. Wow. Uh, I, I really enjoy I don't know if you guys get as much pleasure as I do out of these things. Like, I get like chills when I find these like pieces of data that kind of really contravene the popular narrative for what's going on uh, in a particular art form, in, in especially because yeah. the description of art is itself an art. Yeah, I mean, just to, to call back on something that you guys talked about in last week's, uh, I think it was last week's podcast, right, where Matt was, uh, uh, you know, walking around the United Kingdom and everybody was like, oh, you know, like every, everybody in England is talking about Breaking Bad. And then Matt would be like, well, actually, you know, in the United States is kind of a niche thing. Nobody really talks about it. And then he, I think someone, maybe you, Pete, uh, turned around and says, well, actually, in the United Kingdom, <laughs> Breaking Bad is seen by a very small number of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's interesting. I mean, and something about that statistic is that uh, those statistics don't take into account people watching it illegally, which I think is something that it's it's interesting. It's like um, it's like with it's like the IRS, right? Like if you're if you're a criminal, like I mean, Breaking Bad is a great example, although I won't do spoilers for it. Um, But like, you know, there's there's one conversation that happens pretty early on in Breaking Bad where they're like – where two characters, I'm not going to say who they are, are basically talking about money laundering. right? They want to figure out how to launder some money. One of the characters is like, well, I'm a criminal. I don't care about whether I pay my taxes. right? The idea is that I'm a criminal. I'm going to either – I'm going to get caught or I'm not going to get caught. Right, and so like, why would I bother to be law-abiding with regards to my taxes when I'm doing all these other illegal things? And the answer is that in the structure of the government, the IRS has like a ton more uh, ability to go after you than the actual sort of criminal authorities do. And in fact, the IRS kind of cordons off a lot of its information and, and doesn't necessarily share it with the other agencies all the time because they have so much power to do so, and because they also don't want to impinge on their mission, which is to collect the revenue. Right? It's like they can't get the tax money from the drug dealers. Um, if if every time they take tax money, every time a drug dealer files his taxes, they get arrested, right? So it's like um, it seems to me like it's worth it to the IRS to let the drug dealers file their taxes, and so it would be worth it 
and this is the sort of long segue I'm doing, long connection, it would be worth it to television and to movies to start incorporating how many people are watching these things illegally, if there's some way of figuring it out. Because you, you could sell advertising against that, you know, if you knew, right? Well, I mean, there are numbers that you can check, but... Um, but of course, if, you, if you're watching it illegally, you're, you're not watching the ads, so they, to some extent, the advertisers don't really care. Well, the, the product placement sure does, right? Like, right. Um, hmm, like you know, when uh, when when uh, um, let me let me just pick a random person off the list here. When uh, outstanding lead actress in a comedy series, Julia Louis Dreyfus, decides that she's going to drink a delicious RC cola on the television show Veep, which I'm sure never happened. Uh, but if she did, then uh, you know, RC cola would care whether people are pirating that. They're getting a whole bunch of different impressions, and also people who pirate shows are different demographic than people who watch them legally. So that could also be something to keep in mind. Um, but I don't see a necessarily an easy solution for that. Hey, hey, well, since we brought up the subject of product placement, can I take us on a brief tangent here? Um, no, still, we, are, we are tight on topic, Mark. <laughs> we are laser focused on our topic of the day, which is alphabetical order. No, continue. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's still within the realm of television, though. I don't, I don't think we've talked about this on this podcast, so it's, it's, it's be interesting to get your reaction to it. Our, um, so we're all aware that product placement is a big deal in television, right? Um, mm-hmm. Just sort of like, you know, it's, it's well, when I say we're all aware of it, like we, we should stop and remind ourselves that it's such a big deal because it's so prevalent that it's kind of easy to forget about it, right? Um, you know, just like all the compute, just take a look at the computers that you see on television now, right? You know, with like the MacBook, uh, you know, with the glowing Apple logo on the back is, is seemingly everywhere, right? Yeah. Um, Thanks, so- Joe, for that one, yep. A uh, what joke? Sorry. Uh, we can thank <laughs> what joke? Sorry. Uh, we can we can thank Judge Ito for that one, hmm. um, and the OJ trial. That's a that's I guess that's a long time ago for most people. Uh, there was a football player once who probably killed his wife, but we don't know. <laughs> for those of you who didn't catch up on what's going on, anyway, continue. Oh, he was the naked gun, by the way. He also slummed it. He made a television pilot about Navy SEALs uh, that never got picked up. Anyway, continue. Okay. Uh, um, <laughs> so, are you aware that? Um, what they will do when they show uh, the TV shows in reruns, they will change the product placement that um, was originally uh, aired with with uh, that episode and replace it with a contemporary ad. So I was just watching a, a rerun of, I think, like, How I Met Your Mother, um, and they're sitting in a bar, and this episode had aired several years ago, and there is an, like, uh, embedded you know, mise-en scene, like, into, like, you know, a little display tent thing on the table. And the bar they're sitting in is an ad for a movie that's coming out this summer. Wow. What movie was it? Oh, I can't remember. I wish I could remember what it was. What, what I hope it was Battleship. I really <laughs> hope it was Battleship. Um, so you mean that this How I Met Your Mother episode has to have been created by time travelers, is what you're saying? Uh, that is a, one of many <laughs> possible and plausible explanations. Um, wow. The other being that, of course, that uh, you know, someone goes back, right, and you know, digitally alters uh, the, the, the 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 visuals of of the show, and we get something different now uh, when we watch it than when we saw it uh, three years ago originally. Yeah, that's really interesting. Wow, that's 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 amazing because that's I've definitely never heard of that before. Um, oh, it's, and- it's it's very real, and I, I don't have numbers behind it, but I can only assume that this, this practice is uh, increasing. I've definitely seen it when it, in the context you're talking about where it's like an on-screen commercial inside the world of the show will change. And I'm sure they do it to logos and stuff, too. You just don't – you're much less likely to notice or remember that mm-hmm. when it happens. Yeah. Well, I, I mean my only firsthand experience – well, my most relevant firsthand experience to this 
is um, Mark, have I told you on the podcast about the time I, ta- I talked briefly to Ken Burns? Um, um, no, I don't think so. Yeah, I, I, was in a Q, I was in a Q&A with Ken Burns about the 10th inning baseball thing that he did. Uh, and I asked him I, – like, I stood up asked him a question at the q and I, I asked him um, when he was going through the sort of documentary, like the sort of archival footage of all the baseball games to incorporate into his baseball series, especially the more recent ones. What did he feel about things like – you know the uh, the sort of superimposed marquees and advertisements that were kind of put in by the production team over the video, or like the advertisements that were you know how in baseball they sometimes have a blue screen or what have you green screen behind the batter and they chroma key in uh, an advertisement for a company right so it's like right. it looks like it's on the wall of the stadium because um, it's like if you're making a documentary about baseball and the the visual that you're showing is the television broadcast of the baseball. As you're saying, that's not the, the, in the that's not the mise en scene, right? Like the mise en scene is, which is a term that refers to like the thing that you're taping, right? When you're taping a movie, like the stuff that is there, um, or a taping movie or a television show or whatever. Like those ads aren't there. The people who were at the game didn't see that mm-hmm. WB Mason ad that was behind the batter, um, and they didn't see the sort of flashing ad for Joe Millionaire that came up across the bottom of the screen, <laughs> right? Like um, or for Skins or whatnot. Um, no, Skin. Skin is the one that was advertised in baseball. Skins was the other show that was supposed to be better but wasn't. Uh, a British version. Right. Never mind. But yeah, but his answer was basically like uh, it didn't buy. He thought about it for a long time. Like he, he definitely wrestled with the sort of questions of it. And he felt like in the I think he felt like in the clips that he took, it wasn't a huge problem. Um, but he definitely acknowledges that it is an issue. And it's, I don't think it, he has necessarily has access to like the raw footage that was taped at the game. Right, like if they archive that somewhere independently of the different advertisements, and is, if you strip it out, is that any better than if you, um, you know, you go with what was there, right? Because you're again making an editorial choice on what, what you have. Um, but wow, that's interesting, and I bet you that they're gonna. You think when do you think they're gonna start doing that for political candidates? They're gonna like go back into Seinfeld and like change all the references to like Mitt Romney. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it could happen, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, I'm, oh, you're probably joking about that, but uh, the not really. The, the, I'm, yeah, <laughs> the, 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 let's, let's back up. The question we're asking is like, what is this limit to uh, you going going back and um, and, and changing uh, works of pop culture, and while still being able to consider it being the, the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this, this, okay. So the Star Wars, you're going back, and Greedo shoots shoots first, and uh, you know that being uh, an obvious example of, of the sort of problem that we're we're starting to to, to to encounter more frequently, right? Yeah, I mean, I think I think in this case, the the way of articulating the specific problem is that you're taking a, a artistic performance of some kind or a show. I'll just call it a show uh, that has a certain authority. You know that people that people respond to it in a certain way because they've seen it before. They have expectations for it, um, and you're you're selling that authority. Right, um, and and it's, I feel like the, there feels like there's something different between the first time you sell that authority and then the successive times that you sell the authority, right? Like um, like Neil Patrick Harris drinking a Bud Light because somebody paid him to drink a Bud Light. It does feel different than if that um, label changes every time you see him drink it. You know, what I mean, it, first of all, it, it it reflects negatively on him. I think, right? Like um, that that's mm-hmm. I think a risk because. Uh, 
I mean, sitcoms in particular thrive off of attachment, like people in the audience feeling attached to the characters, relating to the characters, feeling connected to the characters, uh, and making them a part of their routines, making them a part of their lives. And if the characters are sort of seen as being flaky and changing their mind about what products they're endorsing, that could probably hurt them more than endorsing a product at all. Um, so I guess there's, there's that argument for it. But There's one kind of the other side of that is, particularly in comedy shows, there are some that have gotten away with using the product placement as a joke. I'm thinking particularly of 30 Rock and Colbert Rapport, mm. where they very obviously, like basically turn it, literally there's a 30 Rock episode, I can't remember what they're advertising, but where they, they make the reference to the product and uh, Tina Fey's character turns into the camera and says, can we have our money now? Right, and right, same right. thing on Colbert Report, where he'll make a huge deal out of whatever his sponsor of the month is or whatever. Yeah. Um, and actually turn it into a net positive for the show, where it's funny because you're like, oh, ha ha, they're, you know, they, they, they're being paid to say that. Yeah. I mean, my, my first time I encountered that consciously was, I think, Wayne's World, right? Or is it Wayne's right. World 2? Whichever one he eats the Pizza Hut in. Uh, that's, uh, that's definitely Wayne's World, where he's like consciously going through all the products and turning towards the camera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is funny because product placement then in television in particular was so much less than it is now um, and so much less of the business just proportionally. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I guess it makes it okay. Yeah, I mean, if I were a producer, like, you, you know, people always talk about the way that producers and executives at the company like, kind of hamstring shows creatively and cause a lot of problems. If my job were to cause problems for a show, one of the problems I would cause would be like, let's make sure that the endorsements that these characters are doing are like remain sort of consistent enough to the characters as we shift them over time so that like people don't lose <laughs> faith in the characters. Um, like, you know, Kramer should have a favorite uh, chicken chain restaurant like do you change the kenny rogers episode of of seinfeld so that he eats a chick-fil-a instead um like would that be a better uh thing to chick-fil-a to spend its money on than the other stuff that's spending its money on like maybe i don't know um yeah i don't know it's a really interesting phenomenon i'd have to see more about how much it costs and who's doing it and stuff like that I'd, i'd also be interested to know is it more expensive to put product placement in the show that's hard to change Oh, you know, if, that's if really ha- interesting. If you have the characters say, oh, how great is Pizza Hut? And, you know, they hold up what's obviously a slice of Pizza Hut. That's a lot harder to change than if just happened to be carrying around a box that yeah, has the logo yeah. on it. Yeah, there's you know, totally so going to be. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. I wonder if there's a price difference because I don't think you could change the Seinfeld episode of Kenny Rogers Chicken because it's it's so central to what's going on in that episode. And they talk about it a lot. And there's a lot of jokes that are tangential to it. It's not just as easy as, you know, cut and paste with uh, Photoshop. Yeah, yeah. I feel like uh, on the Big Bang Theory, Sheldon is going to take a, uh, a, a, something he bought from Target and put it underwater and wave a pine branch in front of it. And that way it'll be very difficult to, uh, to change that to a different image through post-production. <laughs> <laughs> there'll be too much distortion there. Yeah, you could, like, you could proof it. You could like, uh, when we film it, we're going to use a specific polarization or something that's going to make it difficult to change. Um, yeah, okay. Yep. Now I think might be a good time to, uh, to confess something is that uh, over the last, what, three years we've been doing this podcast, my professed love of Terminator has all been a paid product placement. 
um, <laughs> and that it is open to the highest bidder. So that if you want to, uh, you know, retroactively change the Overthinking a Podcast back catalog to turn Lee into an enormous Transformers fan, two zero three two eight five six four zero one, and we can negotiate. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, now I see. I see your kind of game. You don't want to do long bets, but you definitely want to. You have a long game in mind, definitely. Mm-hmm, Definitely. I don't even want to make a joke as to what that would be because I want to hear what the the listeners come up with. And maybe we'll sneak it into a future episode for, for giggles because I'd appreciate it. I'm really glad you've chosen to endorse Tom Berenger for president of the United States and also Sniper 3. Uh, <laughs> so Homeland has won Best Drama. There you go. And Mandy Patinkin gets to come on stage at the Emmys. Um, and and isn't, what do you know? So, uh, so yeah. So the best, the best miniseries was Game Change, uh, which beat Hatfield and McCoy's. Um, and then the best, uh, Kevin Cosner won an Emmy. So he's, he's added to that for lead actor in a miniseries. Jeez, they're all rolling in now. Has, um, has Kevin Costner won, a, won an Oscar? So he's, is he like halfway to an EGOT? I thought he won an Oscar. Uh, I thought he won an Oscar for, was he nominated uh, for Dances with Wolves? Or let's see. He was nominated for Best Actor for, for Dances with Wolves, I think. Oh, okay. Um, let me see, yeah. Mandy Patinkin is halfway to an EGOT with a Tony and an Emmy. Nice. Kevin Costner has won an Oscar. He won an Oscar for directing Dances with Wolves. He did not win an Oscar for oh, acting. That counts, that counts. By the way, yeah, that, yeah. This is where, for those who aren't getting this, this is another 30 Rock reference, right? The EGOT being what um, Jenna Maroney uh, wants to win, right? An Emmy, Grammy... Oscar and a Tony. Oh, uh, okay. And well, Tracy Scott Jordan being... had the the gold necklace that said EGOT on it. <laughs> nice, nice. He did win Most Desirable Male in 1992 at the MTV Movie Awards for The Bodyguard. Um, <laughs> or for, it was, the Movie Awards ceremony was in 1993. So there you go. Oh, and he also won Most Desirable Male in 1992 for his performance in the 1991 juggernaut, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. <laughs> So he's he's won. I don't know if there's a lot of people who have won both Oscars and Emmys and two years running most desirable male at the MTV Movie Awards. It doesn't seem to be the kind of thing that happens. Maybe maybe Mel Gibson is going to do it someday. We'll see. Um, and he's won Razzies too. That's great. I'm very uh, sad to see that uh, Margaret Cho did not win an Emmy, though she was nominated. She did not win the Emmy for. Uh, Outstanding guest actress in a comedy series for her amazing portrayal of Kim Jong Il in last uh, the last season of Dirty Rock. <laughs> That's really too bad. I mean, here's an interesting phenomenon. Looking at the acting performances, if you go across drama, comedy, and miniseries, four out of the six are film actors for the most part. Mm. Like, oh no, no, three out of six. Three out of six. There's Claire Danes, Julianne Moore, and Kevin Costner. Now, of course, miniseries and TV movies are going to be more likely to have movie stars in them than TV. But, uh, you know, you got Claire Danes. And then if you look at the supporting actors, you've got Dame Maggie Smith, you've got Jessica Lange, you've got Tom Berenger, who is certainly not a TV actor nominally. Um, so, yeah, so like about half, in fact, half of the acting awards went to actors who I would categorize as primarily uh, movie actors. And also um, Julie Bowen is, has done a lot of movies, right? Like, or she was, did Happy Gilmore, which is from that other period that we were talking about earlier of the height of Adam Sandler's powers, right? So even that gets to tie back into our little vortex here that we got going. Um, but if rather we're here, we would say something about the movie business and the TV business and how this is kind of a huge deal. 
because um, it certainly seems like a huge deal. I wonder if that'll be one of the things that gets framed in the. Uh, you know, in the, uh, when, when you said that, I'd rather hear he would talk about you know the movie TV movie business versus the TV business. For a second there, I thought you were going to say how uh, the distinction uh, is no longer quite as prevalent as it used to be. Mm-hmm. I, I just meant I might let him out of the basement. Uh, no, 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 you're right. Yeah, for, also, for like, apple picking. Well, there are, there are issues of payment, right? Like you make more money. Um, but yeah, the distinction isn't as much as it used to be, definitely. Um, things are flattening out. Uh, and, and that is good news for some and, and bad news for others. And that's sort of how it goes. I mean, you look at – here's some of the other movie stars who have been nominated for, uh, for Emmys this year. Um, Steve Buscemi, uh, Kathy Bates. Um, I guess Michael C. Hall doesn't really count any. Oh, no, Michael C. Hall, no, sorry. Not Anthony Michael Hall. Michael C. Hall, he's a TV star. Uh, and there are people who've jumped over, like John Hamm and Brian Cranston, but I wouldn't count them. Um, I'd be looking more at, like, uh, um, well, Melissa McCarthy? No. No, not her. Nicole Kidman. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'd, argue but, le- I'd argue at least part of that is TVs, it's certainly in production quality, and just in overall quality, TV is rapidly catching up to movies. I mean, you take three episodes of Game of Thrones, slap them together into two hours, and you could probably sell it as a you probably could sell it as a movie. Maybe the plot pacing wouldn't work, but in terms of everything else that goes into making a movie, it's pretty much what you'd expect to see in a theater. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what they did with the Simpsons movie, right? Pretty much in the Aqua Teen Hunger Force colon movie film for theaters. It's like a long episode. Oh, Alec Baldwin, of course, and Don Cheadle. I don't want to forget them. Uh, both nominated for Outstanding Lead Actor in a Comedy, which is wacky. Um, but yeah, no, it, they are definitely, there's definitely a, a closer a closing gap in, yeah. in quality. To, to, to piggyback off of Ben's point and to just sort of hark it back to something that I talked about on the podcast before, um, if you just imagine the different variables that go into producing uh, entertainment that is of the motion picture variety, um, I'm not going to say TV or movies because that's sort of – uh, those are two concepts which are, 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 are changing. If you think about like the method of distribution and the amount of money you put into it and the sort of the serialization <clears throat> serialization of it, you know, we've had this idea that you put out a movie, you put a bunch of money into it and it's this thing and you have TV and you put a different kind of money into it and it's this thing and it looks a different way. Um, like those, you know, the variables that have gone into producing those sorts of um, uh, th- those sorts of products, uh, like those calculations don't uh, have, have changed drastically, right? You know, where, you know, in the past to, to make a viable, you know, quote-unquote TV product that you put out in over several seasons or a miniseries, it's going to look this way because you can't afford the same special effects as a movie. That doesn't hold anymore. Um, so it's... It, the, the equation is just going to keep changing more, I think, and I, I would really be curious to see, you know, if we get things like more miniseries um, or, uh, you know, movies that, uh, uh, you know, are more serialized or something like that. Like, you know, mm. b- sort of big changes that challenge our fundamental assumptions of what TV and movies ought to be. Yeah, and I... Oh, go ahead. Uh, so of course, there is still a golf. I mean, kind of harkening back to what we are talking earlier, the big prestige pictures and the big prestige actors are still kind of in a level of their own. There's no TV equivalent of the master. There's no TV actor, Daniel Day-Lewis, that you know does one picture every four years and lives in the woods to study for it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So there is still kind of that distinction between the artiste movies. There isn't really an artiste TV. 
Right. And I, and I want to formally put Nakula, Basili Nakula on notice because with the rising quality of television challenging movies, the innocence of Muslims isn't going to stand up in a cinematic achievement anymore. <laughs> people are going to start getting angry. If he doesn't oh. raise the level of his game, people are going to start getting angry and they're going to, not, they're going to be displeased with his work. It is amazing that the, the uh, video entertainment that has such a profound impact uh, is such, so shoddily edited. Um, and terribly put together. Um, but you know what? Who isn't terribly put together? You guys, the overthinkers, ah. and you guys at home. <laughs> Look, all right, every once in a while I make a Nicholas Basley Nicola joke, and you know what? That's going to happen because sometimes I slum it. Sometimes I back down off of my, my high expectations that you all have, and, and sometimes we just we do something just because it's fun or because uh, leave me some kidnapped our family or something. Anyway, uh, that, that is all that we have for this wonderful week, what remains is to ask you to talk to us about the Emmys, to talk to us about the master, to talk to us about uh, you know slumming and, and actors and all the stuff that we've been talking about here today. We'd love to talk, chat with you in the comments. Thanks so much if you're new to the podcast. If you're a new listener, we're glad to have you. Let us know if you have any questions. We'll fill you in all the inside jokes and gossip. Uh, please... Uh, you can email us at podcastoverthinkingit.com if you want to contact us directly, uh, kind of off the grid a little bit and ask us questions and whatnot, and we'll get back to you. And uh, there's also the uh, – Mark, what's the, the non-offensive uh, way of articulating our phone number? Because I get in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> YP, it's 203-285-6401. Excellent. And, and the standing challenge for that is if you can find a way of making that into spellable words that aren't suggestive of a sex act, we'd really appreciate it. <laughs> 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 but until then, uh, remaining not suggestive of a sex act, but suggestive of completion, uh, you can visit us on the web at uh, – gosh, that was horrible. Mark, can you edit that out and replace it with an ad for Mountain Dew? Because <laughs> that would feel a lot better. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, the conversation will continue, and James Bond will return on uh, <laughs> www.overthinkingit.com, the website that subjects the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve. Ding, 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 ding. Ding, ding. No uh, Emmy for you. Sad face.